This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Tim Stanovic. Let's set the Business Week agenda. We've got Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Also from New Jersey on the remote access is Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News. Gina, kick it off for us. Another week, a lot of the same kind of big issues, macro issues, headlines that we're still staring, uh, still staring at. Yeah, we are still staring at them and dealing with them. How do you see it? Yeah, well, I see the start of this week as a little bit of give back of extraordinary gains Mm. last week. I mean, we were coming off one of the strongest months on record in November. We had a really strong week last week. So far today, we've given back half of Friday's gains. So it's a little bit of give back. I think we got to pretty extreme overbought conditions in the energy sector in particular by the end of last week. That's why we're likely seeing the energy sector as the loss leader on the index down 2.5%, whereas the S&P 500 is only off a half a percentage point. So that tells you a little bit about what's going on broadly is investors may be starting to take a little bit of profit in some of the big leaders over the last month. I mean, these are stocks that were up 35% over the month. So really, really strong bounce back. It's not like it's an abnormal year or anything or a volatile (laughs) year, Gina. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. We're we're kind of accustomed to these numbers at this point, but I do think it's largely technical more than anything more ominous uh, at bay. So you don't think it potentially, you know, shows that that traders are maybe losing a little patience with Congress and, and waiting for that stimulus, right? Uh, I think that that could be a portion of the story. Certainly, in any given day, we might have a heightened focus on what fiscal policy is going to do. Friday was, you know, there was a little bit more optimism that that was likely coming. We didn't get that. Uh, we're still not getting it. We seem to be ha- having a difficult time coming to an agreement. Yeah, so that could be a little bit of it, but someone needs I to bring them cookies, if they right? Were completely giving up. We would have a much worse. Or bop them on the head. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Dave Wilson, come on in on the trade and what you're seeing. I tell you, it it does just look like a bit of pullback as much as anything. It's not like you can go through the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500 and see all that much of a trend. I mean, that said, you know, you see some of the areas where big tech has an influence holding up relatively well. Uh, You know, technology itself is little change. Communication services, which is Facebook and Google's own alphabet, best performer on the day, but it's only up a quarter of a percent. And uh, the consumer discretionary category, including Amazon.com, holding up relatively well, too. So, you know, it it really then becomes sort of a company-by-company story. Uh, The situation with Intel and Apple, which Charlie Pellet noted. Uh, You got Boeing higher, uh, UBS turning more optimistic about the uh, plane maker's prospects, especially, you know, as uh, the vaccines get rolled out and, you know, people feel more like traveling and the aerospace industry benefits from that. But, you know, beyond that, there isn't a a whole lot in terms of, you know, sort of obvious themes you can take away uh, from the trading at the moment. Fair enough. Tesla shares up another 6.3%. Gina, I know you've been writing about Tesla uh, and when they get uh, dumped into the S&P 500. There's no other way to say it, but it will be a huge uh, share price dump or share dump. Um, How do you see it? 
Yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating, quite frankly. If yeah. you look at the last time we added a gigantic company, it was Berkshire Hathaway, and I think that's as good a guide as what to expect as anything. Obviously, the stock has run up in advance of its entry as investors are positioning for its ultimate entry. But then what you usually see, both with the large companies that enter as well as across the, the averages, is the stocks that enter then underperform after mm. they enter the index. So that's a reasonable expectation. Now, what does that do for the index dynamics at large? Well, it probably amplifies this growth-to-value rotation that we're seeing. Tesla clearly being a growth-oriented stock, um, growth stocks have underperformed value pretty significantly over the course of the last several months, and we think the fundamentals are going to support a continuation of that trade. So Tesla might actually amplify that. Mm. Beyond Tesla, I think there's some really interesting potential changes as well. I mean, you're looking at now 9% of the market cap of the S&P 500 that doesn't even meet the S&P's committee's stated threshold for inclusion in the index, while 8% of the market cap of the mid-cap index is actually big enough. So you could see tremendous turnover in constituents right. beyond Tesla, but it's so hard to predict because it is a committee decision, not necessarily a technical decision. So, so what does that mean? I mean, what are the implications of that? Does it mean potential volatility or, or since it's a committee decision, it's sort of they can control the volatility? Yeah, because it's a committee decision, I kind of wonder if they're just going to say, okay, Tesla's enough for the market to yeah, absorb right. at this one time and we'll wait. What's really interesting about this right now is normally these major constituent changes happen in the midst of distress. So if you look at the last time that we had a really big turnover in the index, it was in 2009, in the, the, or sorry, 2008, 2009, in the middle of the crisis, before the market had really started to rebound. And so these constituent changes create a little bit of stability. You know, you lose the loss leaders and you bring on some, some stronger companies and the index starts to st show some stabilization. We've already rebounded to new highs, despite the fact that the economics are somewhat tumultuous. The market is right. in much stronger condition. So what happens when you bring already high flyers and the market is already starting to rotate to some of those laggards? You lose the, the impetus of the laggards, right? You lose right. that upside. So I think the real story here is the growth-to-value rotation. Right. Companies that come in will be growth companies that's going to probably limit the upside potential of the S&P 500 at large. All right. Good to know, certainly as we, we look to the market ahead and, and what we might see. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, Dave Wilson. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. I want to get right to our guests. Let's dig into what we need to know about the virus. Bloomberg News Senior Medical Reporter Michelle Cortez is up next. I believe she's in Minnesota on this Monday. Michelle, good to have you here with uh, Tim and myself. There's a lot going on. I don't know. What's top of mind for you as uh, you kick into your reporting this week? So, Carol, just as you guys pointed out, or as Charlie was speaking about, mm. we are going to start seeing vaccinations begin now in the UK. It was just yesterday that Pfizer and BioNTech started shipping their the vaccine from the facility in Belgium across the channel over to the UK. So they are getting ready to start the massive campaign there. And um, yeah, it's interesting to know that the UK is first to the world in this respect. Feels yeah. kind of weird, doesn't it? Isn't Pfizer an American company? <laughs> Not that I want to get all nationalistic on everybody, but it is kind of odd, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is. It just goes to show you that Sometimes those allegiances aren't what holds, holds up. In fact, Pfizer didn't take any money from the U.S. government, from Operation Warp Speed, in order to get 
fair part of the vaccine done. BioNTech, who they're working with, is a German company. They actually did take some early funding from Germany. Mm. But in the end, it was the U.K. that approved it. They had the doses on hand. So they're going to go first. Why did they get it sooner? Why did they approve it sooner? What does that say about the way that, that we approve medicine and approve vaccines here? So the U.K. did not do the thorough investigation of the vaccine the way that the U.S. and Hmm. European regulators are going to do. Literally, FDA staff members are checking the math, basically, of Pfizer and BioNTech. And the U.K. is pretty much saying, you know, we'll look over it, but we think they're pretty good companies and we're going to trust their numbers. You know, of course, there's many examples in the world of where things have gone wrong because of something like that, right? Yeah. Like, in my and, understanding, is one of the shuttles blew up because they didn't. Yeah. You know, well, exactly. So you need to have somebody catching that on the one hand. On the other hand, if it was really tragic, um, you know, probably would have seen that in the clinical trials. But, they're gambling. But they're we're not gambling. talking months or, or weeks here. We're talking just days sooner. So so it's not like they're losing. It's not like we're losing in the U.S. that much time by doing this extra work. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. We're, we're not using, losing time. And from the from the beginning, the U.S. perspective has been we want to do it once and we want to do it right. Right. And of course, we did run into some trouble with that. Right. Like the very early testing you know, we, we rolled out from the CDC. It didn't work really well. And so we just stopped until they could get it fixed. And there's been a lot of criticism for that. But they didn't want people to be making decisions based on results that they weren't entirely sure of. So right. instead, we just had none. All right. We got to ask you about talking to Fauci. <laughs> Bloomberg 50, you wrote the uh, write-up on them. Uh, it's an amazing list. And Anthony Fauci, I think everybody would agree that that was probably, everybody's like, yep, Fauci's on the list. No <laughs> doubt about it. It's probably the first name. Yeah, I saw that one coming. Tell us about... I don't know, how you think about him, your conversation with him. Well, it was a great conversation. The thing that astonishes me about Anthony Fauci is that he is so out there. He has been so accessible to millions of Americans. If you want to know what he thinks, you can just go online almost any day and listen to him saying what his take is on the on the state of the pandemic and the virus. The thing that's astonishing about it is that even someone like myself, who probably listens to him, you know, most days of the week, in almost every conversation, he says something that's truly astonishing, really insightful, that helps people understand where we are with the outbreak and what we need to do in order to get to the next level. You know, I was surprised to find this, Michelle. Maybe it doesn't surprise you, but my former colleague at HuffPost, Jeffrey Young, did a story last week about a day in the life of, of Anthony Fauci. He still goes and sees patients. Uh, who are he does coronavirus rounds daily? It sounds like, which was really. Did you? Know, I mean, that's I didn't know that he did that right now. How does he? Do, how does he find the time to do that? But he's still yeah. out there interacting with patients. Yeah, he absolutely is. But that is exactly my point. The Jeff, who used to be with Bloomberg, actually on the Bloomberg Health team, um, he did that. His story ran the same day the Bloomberg Fifty ran. Entirely different approach and yet it's something that people can read and learn something new about Fauci from that exact thing like I mean how many people get up at 5 30 in the morning I think actually the thing that surprised me about what Jeff wrote is that uh he hadn't built in Fauci's running I mean Fauci's a runner and he had just a couple of months ago ran several miles every single day. I think he got, backed off on that a little bit. But, Miss, um, Michelle, we got to run. And I love the picture because he's got sneaks on in the picture. So maybe that's an indication. Michelle Cortez, you're the best. Bloomberg News Senior Medical Reporter joining us. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we've talked about this on our broadcast. We've definitely covered it in Business Week about how the federal prohibition on weed is handicapping uh, the young industry, which is expected to, by some, to be something like a $53 billion industry, at least uh, as measured by sales by 2025. We're talking about cannabis. Yeah, should I make a joke about green or something? Or it's high? Uh, I don't know. Like I feel like there are a lot of puns here, Carol. (laughs) Yes, there's lots of them. Um, Let's get into a story by Bloomberg News uh, Consumer Report reporter Tiffany Carey. She reports for Bloomberg Business Week on the shortest road to legal weed may not just run through the state of Georgia or may just run through the state of Georgia. Excuse me. Tiffany's on the phone in New York City. She joins us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber with us on the access line from Brooklyn. Cannabis. We keep waiting for it to kind of fully take off, but we've got to get kind of a federal okay with it, Joel. Yeah. And you know, we're, what we're really seeing is this state-by-state enthusiasm that, you know, it starts with a state basically legalizing uh, uh, medical marijuana, and then within 10 years, they're probably starting to consider legalizing recreational uh, marijuana. But you're right, there remains that federal hurdle. The the implications for that sticking are... sticking point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just the, the puns just keep on rolling. Um, you know, you end up with the, the banking sector sort of having, um, uh, being one of the kind of the pinch points so that these end up being cash businesses because they don't have any sort of bigger banking abilities. But what, what really is happening in the background here is if you look at Georgia and the way the, the Senate and, and Congress sort of conversations could go, we could see some pretty significant things happening depending on how Georgia goes. And, and that's sort of what we what we get to in Tiffany's story. So, Tiffany, why are uh, all eyes on Georgia right now? Sure. You know, it's it's been a big year for cannabis already. Just having the House of Representatives vote to, de- to, to legalize it is a really big deal. And in Georgia, you know, the vote there is really going to determine what the Senate does. And as of now, it doesn't matter that, you know, all these Democrats in the House has the enthusiasm to do this because we've got Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader. So if Georgia elects two Democrats instead of two Republicans, it's going to flip the Senate. That means McConnell won't really be a roadblock for the industry anymore. So it's giving people a lot of optimism that maybe this most aggressive of all the legislation so far, the MORE Act, might actually go through this year. And that would be something. Uh, yeah. Because I think a lot of people don't what a lot of people don't realize is the what Joel was getting at the the financial hurdles that these or, or limitations that mm-hmm. the marijuana companies have. Tiffany, Tiffany, if you could just talk a little bit about this idea that, that Joel brought up um, that these companies often have to yeah. deal in cash because you know banks are chartered by are chartered federally, so they can't they can't touch the stuff. That's right. It's it's just crazy if you can imagine going to pay your tax bill when you're you know you're making hundreds of millions of dollars and you somehow have to do that all in cash. I mean, no one really wants that situation. That's a lot yeah. under a mattress. I'm just yeah. gonna say it is, or or in really small regional banks that agree mm-hmm. to do this, but you know aren't that don't have that much else going on. It's a lot for them. So you know the other thing is the industry has been so focused on profits. They really say they they're operating with one hand tied behind their back because of the tax burden on them. They face up to like a 50% tax burden, much more than other companies. So if that goes away, a lot of these companies will become more profitable um, and they can also access the capital markets. So think about, you know, a company in a liquidity pinch that can't 
issue bonds or take out loans. Um, you know, they're sort of stuck consolidating and doing deals now. But if the banking changes, that's going to open up a lot for this industry in terms of flexibility, being able to grow, profitability. So, so obviously, I think the industry is hoping that the the state of Georgia goes Democrat because you know we we basically have a sense from Republicans that they won't take this up on, on otherwise. Um, but I'm I'm wondering, you know, if that's the sort of the worst case scenario for the industry. What what do we know about President Biden and sort of what he might attempt to do for the industry? Well, it's interesting. Things aren't actually that clear cut because there are a couple of other pieces of legislation out there. The one that was approved was the Moore Act, but there's also the States Act, which would sort of keep things status quo. And a lot of folks have said, look, that might actually be better for some of these companies that have built up these really strong presences in certain states because it doesn't open them up to more um, to more competition from the outside. So, you know, there's some hope that might be how this goes or that Biden might also just sign an executive order which is something that has been done in the past with the Cole memo, and that might just take care of some of the criminal justice issues um, that have been an issue. And maybe there will also just be banking reform, too. The industry could have um, the, the ability to bank through the Safe Banking Act, but sort of keep the status quo in other regards. Well, and I do wonder if, you know, if, we, if this happens and they do get the go-ahead, I mean, do the floodgates just open up? Because I feel like this is the one thing you know, in a federal approval, basically, um, federal approval of the industry, this is what we've all been waiting for, right? Because as you said, it's state by state. We've had a lot of conversations with cannabis CEOs. They've been on the Bloomberg 50 lists. They've been recognized in the magazine. Um, I feel like this is what it's all about, Tiffany. Well, yeah. And, and then there's the interesting question of what happens to all the Canadian companies where really there's been most of the investor enthusiasm. Um, there was always this hope by starting the business in Canada that when the U.S. Mm-hmm. opens up the floodgates, as you put it, are open. The folks have said, look, there's going to be some sort of ring fencing around the U.S. industry. It's not all going to be as simple as that. I do wonder when it comes to widespread legalization, what the states are telling us about popular opinion versus what the Senate is feeling and, and what Republicans are saying. It does seem like since Colorado was you know, among the first states to do this at this point, I think eight years ago, Carol. Which is amazing. It is. It is. It's just that the federal government hasn't moved in, in lockstep with states because we're at a point now where, where the legalization and decriminalization is, is, in fact, in the majority of U.S. states. Right. And it seems like at this point, the federal government is, is just behind, Tiffany. Yeah, and what's interesting is in November's elections, you had South Dakota and Montana, these more typically um, conservative states, voting in favor mm. of this, really showing it has become a more bipartisan issue. And now it's a matter of what what do those Republicans do in Washington? They obviously now have a reason to care more about the constituents. I think that's that's going to further the conversation in D.C. You know, and I, one other thing that you you made me think of there, Tiffany, is just through a sort of an investment standpoint, like there is sort of exposure that investors can get to to things like marijuana through, especially like through like things like ETFs. There's MJ, which is one uh-huh. of the best tickers um, probably of all time. <laughs> um, but you know, there, we've also um, noticed that there's even different structures that allow investors, if you're particularly bullish on where the U.S. might go here, like that's a whole other conversation that I know Bloomberg Intelligence has been having too. Yeah, exactly. And it's something to think about. I was just looking up at MJ. It is actually down about 9% so far this year. All right, Joel, thank you so much. Joel Weber, along with Tiffany Carey at Bloomberg News. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Monday. Carol Masser along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. And what are the top ideas of this story? I feel like it's something we've talked about a lot during the pandemic, Tim, is this need for collaboration. And we've seen it with the virus, right? The world really coming together, uh, not with the virus specifically, but to create a vaccine for the virus. Not just to create a vaccine, but to get it from one place to another. You know, we spoke to Michelle last hour, yeah. Michelle Cortez, uh, our senior healthcare reporter. Yeah. And she uh, she struck me with one thing she said, that the vaccine went to the UK in the channel, right? The channel tunnel mm-hmm. by train right. from mainland Europe. Which is kind of interesting, right? That's to think cool. about logistics. Yeah, in terms think, of, and, and the way that things get from one place to another in Europe, too. Right, which is something, exactly. It's a it's a huge, um, when you think about transportation between that part of the world. Um, I want to get into um, a column written by Bloomberg Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. It is thinking about collaboration, this whole idea of working together. And Andy writes about this collective spirit in uh, his latest column. He joins us on the phone in New Hampshire. So, Andy, good to have you here with Tim and myself. Tell us a little bit about this column and this whole idea. I I love this idea of collective spirit and when we really all come together, like what we can get done. Yeah, well, you know, it really doesn't seem right to be too optimistic at a time when, as we just heard, <laughs> oh, man, the come on, Andy. <laughs> racing across the United States, you know, and the global economy is in such a precarious position. Nevertheless, we really ought to be celebrating, I think, the development um, of this revolutionary, uh, you know, mRNA vaccine, which is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, scientific breakthroughs of the last several decades. Um, I'm talking about the vaccine developed by Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech, you know, which, uh, uh, according to the, the tests that, they, that these companies have, have conducted themselves, um, have proved to be 94, 95% successful, um, you know, in preventing infection and are going to have a decisive role to play in ending what has been, you know, the greatest challenge to human health and the global economy, you know, since, since World War II. Um, and as you say, it is the result of this cross-border collaboration involving a lot of immigrants and particularly involving women who really have had a critical role to play in developing so much of this technology along the way. It's pretty amazing. It is. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating, Andy, because it also comes at a time when a lot of countries have been looking inward for the past few years and not necessarily in a good way. Mm-hmm. If we think about, well, it depends, I guess it depends on your opinion. But if we think about the way that President Trump has severed ties with international uh, institutions and this idea of America first, and mm-hmm. we have the Brexit movement happening in the UK, separating from the European Union, uh, I wonder what it means for life after the vaccine, if there's sort of this return to you know world liberalism with a small L, and the idea of countries working together in harmony. Yeah, look, and I, and I think it even goes beyond that. I mean, we, we've, we've become sort of cynical about the ability of science and technology and research to resolve some of the big problems of humanity. I mean, we've watched the development of these foundational technologies, artificial intelligence and quantum computing and so on. But, you know, it hasn't fixed our economic problems. Growth, productivity growth is still sluggish. We haven't had these dramatic breakthroughs in human health and longevity. 
Um, and yet this RNA technology that's developed this vaccine holds out the promise that these technologies are really going to come through for us and could resolve not just questions of medicine, but also problems in other areas, most notably in, in climate change. Well, exactly. And I think about, listen, I'm going to go back to Bloomberg New Economy Forum this year, um, Andy, that was just a few weeks ago, you know, with these pillars that you you guys identified, you and your team, and then had conversations about climate, about healthcare. Like, you do wonder if we can look at these problems as a whole, especially when you've got governments around the globe, you know, putting so much money to prop up their economies, can we do it in a more sustainable green way? Can we do it in a way that creates better health for everyone, right? Can we think bigger and do better? Exactly. I mean, I I think it it, it often seems like, you know, we spend so much time dwelling on the problems associated with, with these technologies, and we haven't perhaps focused enough on the promise that they hold out. Um, And some of this promise is actually delivering now or could be delivering quite soon. I mean, you think about nuclear fusion just last week, the Chinese fired up a, you know, their nuclear fusion reactor, which promises unlimited clean energy. I mean, it used to be science science fiction and and now looks like it could seriously be a reality or you look at driverless cars you know people were actually quite pessimistic about the idea of of having a fully um you know autonomous car but actually waymo you know is about to launch in phoenix arizona a fully um you know driverless car service around town um you know so so it is happening um you know and 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 this is on the one hand is this odd thing where we started you know i mean we're seeing all this tragedy and yet out of this tragedy comes hope Mm -hmm. andy would you get in the car without a driver i i you know i would and i'd also and i'd also take the pfizer jab if i if i could take it right this second well you might get it before us Yeah, good stuff. Um, Andy, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Andy Brown, he is our editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy. Check him out on the Bloomberg at uh, Bloomberg.com and also on Twitter at New Econ Forum. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Eric Clark, portfolio manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He. Uh, And his fund, the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, it continues to be just about all of its peers this year and over the last five years, over the past five years, up on average 16% annually, putting his fund in the 94th percentile. That's according to Bloomberg Data. Eric is back with uh, us on the phone from San Diego, joining Tim and myself. Uh, Eric, good to have you back with us. First of all, how's Chicago? How are you guys doing uh, in terms of dealing? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, you're in San Diego. Forgive me. Uh, just wrong hey, notes. That's okay, Carol. <laughs> also, also a tough city. How's how are you guys doing in terms of the virus? Doing okay. I mean, we're starting to shut down some of the uh, some of the restaurants and and limit store you know yeah. numbers of people in stores. So that seems like it's a national thing, even though we can eat outside with with some heat lamps and stuff. But you know, 
I think we're all going to, at least we, at least we all know the playbook and we've seen the movie before, right? Yeah. We have yeah. just have to stay safe. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to dive in and just talk about some of these names on here, Eric, because you're like speaking sure. my you're speaking my language when I look at what the, what our what our producers have gotten for us because this is all about travel and that's what you have your your eyes on right now. You write that you I cannot wait to get Airbnb in the portfolio next week. Just today, we're learning through a new filing the company increased I know increased the price that it wants to uh, sell shares at at the higher end, which was, increases the valuation. Um, why are you so bullish on Airbnb? Well, I, you know, I, I think, and I hate, I hate that they keep raising it. I, I understand if I were them, I would do the same thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think people have realized that, uh, you know, if you can rent a house and have more space and be in a community that you're, you, you want to be in, and, uh, you know, th- there's just a lot of appeal to that. And so I don't think the, the, the hotels are, are by any stretch dead or anything, but I, I just feel like this, this COVID has made people realize that, there's some other options that might even be more compelling to protect yourself and, and have, uh, have your family and enjoy your stay wherever you're going. So I just feel like Airbnb could be the next mega brand. I, I just feel wow. like it's the right time, right place. You're probably not alone. Um, there's another name in, in this list that, that really gets my attention. That's Vail Resorts, uh, ticker symbol MTN. Um, the company owns a lot of mountains, not just Vail, uh, but skiing during COVID. Uh, are you optimistic? <laughs> Well, I, listen, I, I, the, the, the travel basket, if you will, which includes Vail, is one of those that, you know, near term, you always have some, some, some potential kind of uh, volatility around the names in the sector. But bigger picture, it's just the pent up demand for getting out, doing the things that we used to do, that we love to do, you know, sports and music and restaurants and travel that that is just going to be a bigger theme. So I mean, I, I actually like some of these names pulling back. Vale in particular. I mean, listen, they're going to limit the people that are on the mountain, so it, it's not going to be you know for the next three months. But I, I think that that winter will be good. People want to get out and ski. Plus, you're out. You're in the great outdoors where it's much safer. And then we're going to roll into summertime. And I mean, good luck trying to find vacation spots in summertime i suspect unless something radically changes with the virus so i I just feel like these names are just going to be you know great names for the next three years and i do feel like you know whether it's parks public parks anywhere where there's wide open spaces right tim we've seen they actually have fared much better during the pandemic that's where people are going because there is space they can be outside uh, and socially distanced pretty easily. Yeah, and I think that's back to uh, what Eric was saying about Airbnb. The totally. idea of these long-term rentals for people to get out of their small spaces, go somewhere warm for the winter. Exactly. Airbnb is the place to do it. Yeah. Hey, you know, one thing I do want to ask you, though, Eric. So you like Airbnb. Sure. DoorDash also getting ready for their IPO. Not as interested? Not as interested in that one. I mean, we have Grubhub available to us. We don't own it currently. It's just, yeah. you know... I'm a foodie, so I'm a snob with, with food and delivery. Okay. And, you know, most food doesn't get delivered well. So, you, you know, you, yeah. you end up getting your food and it's soggy. And, you know, that just kind of is a poor reflection of the brand that you chose for the restaurant. So that business is just, you know, slow huh. margins, difficult. I, don't know. I get I, a lot I of things delivered. I get some, like, pretty nice stuff delivered. That's not too bad. I always have to microwave Depends pizza. on the food. It's, it's... Depends on the menu item. Some food travels well, and, and yeah. I get it. But uh, but I'm not in love with that one as much. We okay. we, we have opportunities on the Grubhub if we chose to, or or with Uber with uh, with Uber Eats too if we wanted to play that 
that yeah. uh, that part Lots of the market. Of choices. Okay, let's talk Salesforce. Oh, Carol, you, you talked to Stuart Butterfield last week. <laughs> we did from uh, Slack. From Slack, yeah. Salesforce uh, investors on Friday not so happy about that price that that Salesforce paid for the Slack acquisition. But you say that analysts are wrong, Eric, and that the Slack acquisition will offer a multiplier effect. Give us your thinking here. You know, I, I do. I, I think sometimes they get a little too short sighted and they and they spend too much time in their Excel spreadsheets. I, I just feel like Slack is a wonderful product and service and efficiency mm. tool. And yes, Microsoft is giving it away in the bundle. And that's a problem. And yeah. and I always thought, you know, it's a great service that probably just needs to have a, the air cover of a bigger company. And whether that was Salesforce or someone else, I, I just feel like they're going to be able to thrive with a much bigger, much more aggressive sales team. You know, there's just a lot of things you can bolt on to that once you integrate the two businesses with all the different things that Salesforce has. And, you know, if you guys listen to Mark Benioff, I mean, he is just the ultimate showman when you listen to him on conference calls. I mean, he's it's a di- hard he's not a dynam- to get excited about this guy. Yeah, and he knows all about, you know, acquiring companies, right, and integrating. I mean, this is what he does. But I do wonder, you know, Stewart seemed to say that they would be their own entity still, like in their own identity. But do you think that's not the case? In order for it to really ramp up, it's got to be integrated into the portfolio of companies that Salesforce offers or their offerings? Well, I think I think it's both to begin with, right? Okay. They're gonna they're gonna take the two teams and they're gonna they're gonna identify how do we put this bundle together to to really give that multiplier effect to companies and IT departments. But you know, some people are are gonna say, well, I don't know if I want Slack. I'm competing with Microsoft and Salesforce, but now I have to make a choice of of one one service or not, you know, because they're the dominant providers. I just ultimately think that this is. The, the valuation is what it is. Stocks right. are expensive, particularly in that category. And if you see the long-term vision and you're and you have the the finances with interest rates at zero to be able to get really good finance rates low to to purchase a company like Slack yeah. that that is the next generation of startups. And you know they they absolutely favor a Slack over Teams. You know Teams is kind of your the bigger company mentality, whereas the, the, the younger companies and the startups love Slack. All right. Got it, Ron. Eric, good catching up with you. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager of the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. Check out that fund because it's been an outperformer for the last five years. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We'll